Welcome to Kinetic Conversations. I'm Jim Sparrow. Thank you for joining us in the first of our three-part miniseries on Eddie Sturley in preparation for our upcoming Dancer's Legacy performance, an evening with Sturley on May 19th and 20th. Eddie Sturley danced in the Joffrey Ballet from 1986 until his passing in 1991 at the age of 23. Although his career was tragically short, Eddie's gift as a choreographer is still making an impact on the dance community today. In our upcoming performance, Fort Wayne Ballet will be performing three of Sturley's ballets together for the first time with the performance recorded for broadcast by PBS Fort Wayne. We'll take a closer look at Eddie's choreography and his enduring legacy later in this series, but today we will talk about Eddie's life and career with a very special guest. We are joined by Eddie's sister, Rose Warden, and Karen Gibbons-Brown, Artistic Director of Fort Wayne Ballet. So, hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. Thanks Great for doing this. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for being here. We're very excited to drop this podcast. So let's just get started. For those who are not familiar with Eddie, maybe start with a, a little bit about his background, where he grew up, and then his interest in dance and how he got started in terms of that drive that made him who he was. I am so happy to talk about my brother because he was such an exciting child, dancer, artist. He was the youngest of eight children, and our family grew up in South Florida, in Hollywood, Florida. Mm -hmm. And through my life, I danced as a very young child and was always in dance class. And all of the children in our family, they had their specific interest, and our parents were very encouraging for whatever each child's interest was. But because I was young, everybody had to drive Rose to dance class. And so everybody was in the car and we would all go to dance class and I would take dance class and we'd talk about dance class. And I loved dancing. As I grew, my dancing teacher allowed me to teach class. Eddie was 10 years younger than me. And I was starting my first dance class and I asked my mom, can I put Eddie in the class? And she goes, great. So I put Eddie in my dance class and, you know, it was a tap and ballet class for very young children. He was four years old and um, he loved it. He took to it. You know, we were a very outgoing family. So he was having a ball. But as it turned out, all of my other brothers and sisters, they had activities and my mom was running everybody around. And so Eddie would stay on and take the next class. And then if my mom was late, he would stay on and take the next class. So he was always taking class with students that were talented and older than him too. And he got to learn different styles of tap, ballet, jazz at a very young age. He was very outgoing. He was as cute as can be. And so he was always front and center. Mm -hmm. And that's how he began to like dance and love dance. And if you might imagine, so eventually he's in the little tap class and he's the center of attention because he's a boy in the middle. Then he was in a class where the girls were, you know, six, eight inches taller than him and the little kid in the middle is jumping and turning and leaping. And so he uh, won many dance contests when he was young, Dance Masters of America. And as a young dancer, he danced in Star Search. And he was always very outgoing and loved dance. So Star Search. I'm curious about the Star Search. Right. Tell us about the Star Search. So Star Search was an early competition that was similar to American Idol, but mm -hmm. for dancers. Not just for dancers, but for talented kids who were trying to make their way. And, you know, he was just that dynamo of a little kid. And so he went, and of course he won. 
And that was just one of his early accomplishments, mm -hmm. you know, as a dancer. Also in the dance studio we were in, we attended Joe Michaels Dance Studio. His daughter was Mia Michaels. Mia Michaels was the same age as Eddie. She was in the same class as well. One of the most beautiful things about Joe Michaels was you could not wait to get to dance class. He made dance class so much fun that you love to go. So that kind of environment encouraged me and I love dancing there and Eddie loved dancing there as well. <laughs> what brought him to ballet specifically? That's a great question. Uh, we were 10 years apart as I grew up and went into show business and toured on the road. I would come back and I would watch his recitals or performances that he was in. I had a strong conversation with my mom and my dad that said, he is so talented, but if he's going to improve, he's really going to need ballet. More ballet, more technique, because that is the basis of dance. If you have great technique through ballet, however you dance, you will have strength from that. So. My mom said, I just, I know exactly where to put him because when he would go do all these competitions, since he was so outgoing and so talented, every teacher or studio would come up to her and say, please have him come to my studio. He can dance for free. We would love to have another boy. We would love for him to come. Please consider us. So there was this beautiful dance teacher, Liana Navarro from South Florida. And she had, uh, taught classical ballet, incredible technique, and she needed boys. And so she, my mother would drive him three, four, sometimes five days a week to ballet, which was in South Florida, so like a 45-minute drive. And his technique as a dancer really improved. All the while, he was still performing on weekends in little show groups, razzmatazz. And so even though he was taking ballet, he was still keeping his performance and technique up for all of dance. So that's how he came to ballet, and he found a passionate love for it. He enjoyed it tremendously and loved it and loved the musicality of it and what it could bring to dance. So... So the competition world for him was not an unusual world, but in ballet, we have specific competitions, so to speak. They're like the Olympics. We have uh, Prix de Lausanne, then we have the Varna competitions, then we actually have one in Jackson, Mississippi in America, and they tend to happen every four years. Eddie actually was a part of these and won a medal or two. <laughs> I'd like to, for you to talk about that just a bit, if you would. Right. So that was such an exciting part of his career because he won a gold medal in all of those competitions. He was very passionate about dance. And when he worked towards something, he worked for it, uh, for it intensely. And so what led him to those competitions was in the growth of his life, uh, you know, he was in all of these beautiful ballet classes, and yet, you know, he was going to high school at the same time, so exhausted. And a lot of times in high school, you might not be able to get as many of the arts as you need. And so we had a conversation, actually, my mother-in-law, uh, my husband's mother, who was in Virginia, said, you know, if you're looking for a place to put him, you should put him in North Carolina School of the Arts. They just have a great program there. Why don't you think about it? 
And, you know, I'm traveling on the road and my mom. So we facilitated my mother-in-law. We flew him to Richmond. My mother-in-law took him to North Carolina School of the Arts. He auditioned there, won a full scholarship there. He went into his last two years of high school there, and that led him to the competitions you're talking about. So while he was there at that school, he, um, at 16, entered the Prix de Lausanne. That year it was in New York. He won it. It was so exciting for him. At 16, he won it with his own choreography. Very jazzy ballet to Far From Over, and he got attention in the ballet world. All of a sudden, written about in the New York Times, up-and-coming American dancer. Now he returns to School of the Arts. And, you know, now Basel Ballet is talking about bringing him, my brother, to Europe. They start talking about, well, you should think about entering into the IBC, the International Ballet Competition. And that led to him training in um, New York. It led to him training with David Howard, who helped us connect with a partner for him, Jennifer Gelfand. Together in 1986, they both won the gold medal for the United States. And one of the judges at the International Ballet Competition was Robert Joffrey. He saw Eddie dance. He was so impressed with his talent. He presented Eddie with his gold medal and offered Eddie a full contract with the Joffrey Ballet. At the age of? 18. Pretty unusual. So unusual. That fast track was so unusual and so unusual for someone that young and a dancer that size because Eddie came up with this all of the time in his life from different companies that would see him perform and dance. They would say, he's amazing, but he won't be able to dance these lead roles. He's amazing, but he's too short. He's amazing, but, but, but. And every time Eddie heard a but, that would engage him to work on his ability. And that didn't come just poof out of midair. And this is an important part of the story. My parents encouraged all of their children to be the best that you can, give as much as you can, serve as much as you can, and take everybody with you on the journey. What was unique about Eddie was that Eddie was intelligent enough at a young age to take all the lessons from all the children before him and keep building on all of those to use all of our strengths to be able to catapult his career at a long time because he saw everyone endure at all of our strengths. And so uh, that is so inspirational uh, because he needed that in the final journey of his life. He needed that strength and that was there for him. You spoke of Mr. Joffrey really appreciating Eddie's talents. In that specific time of dance, that was during my career as well, in ballet, you were generally, as a female, 5'5 five, five to 5'7, five, maybe 5'8 if you were at New York City Ballet, but it was very specific. Men, of course, needed to be a bit taller to partner the women. So Eddie was within the female range, right? He was small of stature. Like 5'6, five, 5'7. Yes. Five, he was little. And that was a big hindrance in that point in time, yet not for him. 
not for him. And I will share that too. I danced my entire life and I'm small. We're the two shortest people in our family of eight kids, the two dancers, right? And our mantra, Eddie, the two of us, our mantra, small but mighty. We danced with energy, vigor, passion. You had to put us in the center because if you're always to the side in a course line or something, you're a distraction. If somebody dances with strength and passion and feeling and it means something to you, you will grow as a person. You will grow as an artist. And so he had that kind of passion. And to shift back to him and partnering and being small, he did not let that hold him back. It's clear. (laughs) It's clear in any way. But a lot of what I hear and I've read and I know in working with you, Kim Sagami, some of the other people that worked with Eddie Mm -hmm. as well, you were a major inspiration and a mentor for your brother. You guided his career. Well, thank you. And so beautiful for you to mention. And thank you for that so much. We had that very special bond and passionate love of dance and the arts. And so as I grew, I came to see, oh, well, I was Miss Dance of the State of Florida, and then I auditioned at Juilliard, but I didn't get in. What would I have needed to get in? What will Eddie need to be able to get in? And you think about that time, there's always such a competition for women, and it's harder. There's more women that have to compete than men have to compete. But if you don't have the work ethic, if you're female or male, you will not be able to grow and take the path that you should. That has to be there first. Eddie had that passion. He wanted to learn. And so encouraging him, it was an easy thing to do. We were sharing. So when he was on the road, he was at North Carolina School of the Arts. Myself and my husband, we were performing at Hilton Head. He would come spend every weekend with us. He would start to try to learn about music. My husband is a brilliant musician, virtuoso on guitar, perfect pitch. He would talk to my husband about music. What does that really mean? Like what, because dancers count in eight. Well, what is it really like is like, and my husband would teach him like on music, well, this can be a bar six or a bar three. And so when you can speak, like before my husband, like I could only talk in counts of eights. And then I understood if you have to lead a band or an orchestra, you have to be able to count a bar is a bar music is four. Am I talking to dancers or am I talking to musicians? So Eddie learned that at a young age. And that's what I was talking about, him being able to absorb it and take from it, whoever he was around. And that grew to be his strength. And that allowed him to do so much at a young age. So for me, I was a performer first, dancer, singer, and then I feel very confident in calling myself a master seamstress. And so Eddie would grab onto all of those things. He would get around me and he would say, what do I need to do on this costume? How should it be? How should it fit on a body? Or if I was working on costumes, I would say, put this on and let me try it. And how does it fit? And here's where it needs to cut so the line reads correctly. We could share that bond. And he took those things with him. But in looking at some of your costumes, your mm-hmm. designs, and then the actual pieces of mm-hmm. work, we're so fortunate to be able to use some of those. Mm-hmm. I also see a flow of movement. The costume moves without the dancer moving it, if that makes any sense at all. And one of the most 
amazing things I think you've shared with me is how he created the patterns for Empyrean. I know we're jumping, but I want to, I want to make sure we get this. When Eddie was choreographing Empyrean, you were Empyrean dances. Yes. Sorry, let me be more clear. You were with him. Yes. And a lot of the patterns for the dancers, spatially on stage, came from the inspiration from your costumes. They did. So when you talk about the costumes and they move and they have their own breath, uh, the costumes that you're looking at, it's so important in a costume for the dancer that it's not restricting. But that can only happen if it's cut a certain way and if it's tailored a certain way on the dancer. There's certain things that have to happen to make that happen. And people who sometimes are designing don't understand that if they've never been dancing. Since, you know, I danced in things and then made them, I understood that's never going to work when you turn unless it hits a certain way. I was able to pass that along to him. And something that I did when I altered costumes or I had to build costumes, I would build them so that they would last. So a lot of times when you do certain rhinestoning at the time, you know, in the 90s or whatever, right. they would make a rhinestone that had a hook on it, but then the hook would snag on everything. And so I had found this certain rhinestone that you iron on that had all of these certain patterns and weaving patterns. So I'm showing Eddie all of these rhinestone patterns. And I went to New York with him and I had a place in New York where I ordered them from. We went in and I showed him how all these orders were. And then he looked at all of those in the book with me and we went home. He saw all of them that I had. He goes, this would make a great pattern for dance. So we took pictures of those. He put them in a book and he color coded patterns from those rhinestone patterns for entrances and exits that came into each other. So if the rhinestone pattern swirled in and down on a diagonal, he designed the choreography to do that. If a larger rhinestone replaced a smaller one, he would do a replacement design and choreography from that. So it's so interesting how he was able to translate that into choreography and also almost do something other people haven't done. Because in dance, there are common things that repeat that other choreographers do in patterns. But he actually created patterns that people haven't done. It's kind of interesting. And it came from costuming. It's amazing. So it's neat. Yeah. yeah, it's a neat story. We mentioned Mr. Joffrey seeing Eddie and then inviting him to the Joffrey. So talk about a little bit about that portion of the career, going to the Joffrey, being able to work with the dancers and Bob Joffrey and Arpino and all the people who were there at the time who would have interacted in, in that part of his career? Thank you for that question, because uh, Eddie was so grateful to Robert Joffrey for giving him the contract to come onto that company. I think through the gratitude that Eddie showed to, and the respect that he showed to Mr. Joffrey, that was very much appreciated and created an early bond. Uh, Mr. Joffrey saw a spark in him, and the Joffrey was the perfect company for Eddie because since the repertoire was so diverse mm -hmm. and Eddie's dance style was vast, you could actually use Eddie's strengths and feature his strengths within the works that were in Joffrey. Now, imagine for a second, young kid comes into the city, youngest kid in a cast of full members, and all of a sudden, 
lead role, lead role, lead role, lead role. For Eddie, there was so much joy, but there was a lot very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a big dynamic there within dance because many times senior people should get things before a younger kid. But he had a lot of strengths that could not be held back. There are some dancers who are like that. It's so important to dance in a core too. He had a lot of strength as a soloist. Mr. Joffrey saw that and he honed that, you know, for the company. And then also Mr. Arpino. Eddie was inspired by Mr. Arpino, always wanting to choreograph, always wanted to find a way to have new choreography come into the company. Eddie saw that as an opportunity. His confidence never made him afraid to ask, can I choreograph? What can I do? When Mr. Joffrey saw Eddie dance La Cremosa, that he won a gold medal with, the solo to La Cremosa, Mr. Joffrey said, this is so impressive. I can't wait to see what else you do with it. In Eddie's mind, he was like, great. You know, when is the first time I can build a ballet around this? Like, when can I do it? When can I do it? When, you know, so he lit a fire and inspired Eddie, and they gave him a vehicle to be able to do that in. Do it in the Joffrey II workshop. This is going to be great for you. You're going to, you know, let's build on this. Quite often when a piece is choreographed for a second company, like the Joffrey II, it never makes it into the main company. It's often specifically for the younger dancers or those that are being groomed to move into the main company, but the repertoire, the piece itself, is never done by the main company. That wasn't Eddie's experience, was it? No, that was so exciting for him. So Joffrey II performed his ballet. It was so well-received. This is uh, Lacrimosa. Lacrimosa got so much attention, they wanted to bring it into the main company. A little bit around this time, Mr. Joffrey was falling ill. It was important to Eddie to dedicate this work to Mr. Joffrey. And also, Eddie was finding out about his health at the same time. So Eddie was putting together this piece, and it was accepted into the main company all around the same time that the IBC was trying to honor Mr. Joffrey, and they said, we're going to invite the Joffrey Ballet to come back, dance the full-length ballet of a person that won the gold medal four years ago. So might you imagine, 1986, you win a gold medal, and now in 1990, a major company in the United States is dancing your full-length ballet. Oh, wait, by the way, during that period, you also choreographed two other ballets. And how old was he at this time? 20, 21, 22. Years old. Years old. Pretty amazing. Dancing 15 different leads in the Joffrey through all that period and still choreographing the entire time. Full of life. Living every life, every part of life to the fullest and sharing all that energy with everyone who he was around. So every choreographer that was around him, famous choreographers, they would get done a rehearsal and he would say, can I go to coffee with you? And I want to learn everything you know. And everybody would like turn their head like, what is he doing? You know, he wanted to learn. All of the dancers around him, you know, were inspired to support him, to help him finish the work that he was doing. And so they were uplifting him as well. So it was very beautiful. 
This is about the time of Empyrean, is that correct? That's right. So um, it was a very interesting time and, you know, a challenging time for him. So he's dancing all of these lead roles in New York and he's choreographing. He choreographed for North Carolina School of the Arts, Concerto Cambrio. They invited him again to choreographer's workshop. He created Effigy. They just danced his ballet at the International Ballet Competition. And he was dancing a role choreographed by Gerald Arpino called Clowns. And it is about the Holocaust and the pain of that and what people experienced from all the loss of all of that. And before he went on for his opening night performance, he found out he was HIV. And so I look at that picture and I imagine what that could feel like for a human being to step on stage and know that. And you read this article in the New York Times, amazing dramatic performance, never seen it done like this ever before, incredible virtuoso performance by a Joffrey dancer. And yet his heart, you know, is aching because he's realizing his life will be short. I'd seen that photograph that you are speaking of before, but I had not known that part of the story until you shared it with me. Right. And when you look at it with that knowledge, you can only imagine right. what that must have been like for him in that moment. Right. You know, he took a breath before he shared with everyone. And when he came to me, when he was ready to share that with me, and we talked about what that would be like for our family and how that news, how he had to keep that news inside. It was at a time where people wouldn't touch or be around anybody that they thought had AIDS because nobody knew what it meant. And there was such a stigma. So now there's this privacy that you have to hold. But he immediately went to, what will this do to the people I'm leaving behind? He was so afraid about how it would crush my parents, how it would crush my mother. What would it do to our family? How would we go about this? And so even though I was so crushed by this news and in front of him, I said to him, we will do this together. And we talked together about how we would talk to each of our family members separately, my older brother and sister, and each family member one at a time. So then when my mother and father did receive the news, they would be able to try to process it. Because at that time, if you realize, you know, my parents are, you know, God bless them while they were leaving, but they were depression parents. They never understood what this could really mean. You know, my mother in her head, there's an antibiotic for this, right? Like it took her time to process what this could mean. So we created a support system for them uh, so it could help my parents understand. My siblings were amazing about that. But I will share with you, after I heard that news and I was away from him, I mean, I probably cried for three days. I'd like to thank our guests Rose Warden and Karen Gibbons-Brown for part one of our discussion of Eddie Sterley. Dancer's Legacy, An Evening of Sterley will be performed May 19th and 20th at the Arch United Center. 
Tickets are available at fortwayneballet.org, artstix.org, or by calling the box office at 422-4226. And for more information on Sturley and our performance, visit fortwayneballet.org slash eddie. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shop Productions. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website in the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout.